Hello, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians and Indigenous peoples of Canada on whose lands we are producing this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal, Nambri, Menang Nunga, and Squamish Nation peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Sean Heath with your other host, Tim Johnson. Hello. And we are going to be your familiar strangers for today. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ian Cook. Hi, Ian. Hi. Absolute pleasure to be here. Ian is editor-in-chief at Allegra Lab. He is an anthropologist whose work focus includes urban India, scholarly podcasting, open education, and environmental injustice. He was director of the Open Learning Institute, Olive, at CEU in Budapest from 2019 to 2023. He likes working with scholars to make podcasts. It's our pleasure to speak with Ian today about his recent published book, Scholarly Podcasting, Why, What, and How, which, as Ian describes it, is an examination of the insurgent, curious craft of podcasting through a scholarly lens. Featuring the voices of 101 scholars and podcasting academics, the book analyzes the implications of moving towards a more open and accessible form of knowledge production. A large section of the book is dedicated to equipping readers with the background knowledge and skills needed to produce high-quality podcasts through reflexive critique of current practices. Throughout our conversation today, we're going to jump around from discussing the why and how of how Ian got into podcasting in the first place, and how his self-professed addiction to this audio format has led to this book. We're going to discuss podcasting as a creative form of novel production within and outside the academy. And importantly, we discuss how podcasting might change our scholarly practices, or at least open up new possibilities for non-traditional forms of publishing to be recognized as meaningful outputs within the academic system. So Ian, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself as a scholar and a podcaster? I'm really, really interested in uh, the why and the how of how you got into podcasting in the first place. Yeah, um, it's a great question. So I was listening to podcasts quite a lot back sort of 2013, 2014. And when I came back from doing fieldwork in South India, really my sort of primary research was as a, is as an urban anthropologist. I work in a city in South India called Mangaluru and I was writing up my PhD. And I'm sure anyone who's listening who is in the midst of writing up a PhD knows it's sort of a weird and uh, I was going to say wonderful, but it's, it can be wonderful. But often sort of a, yeah. A, a, a thing, yeah, it can be. <laughs> it can be, yeah. A thing that sometimes you're looking for happy distractions from. And uh, so at the time I saw that the New Books Network, New Books in South Asian Studies was asking for a new host. And so I said, you know what, that'll, that'll do. That'll be a nice thing to do. So I wrote to the... Um, the founder of the New Books Network, Marshall Poe, and I said, yeah, maybe I can try it. And I started doing it. And it was really great. It was really great fun. Basically, I would write to people who recently published a book in South Asian studies. They'd send me the book. I'd read it. Then I'd have a conversation with them about it. And at the time, I was in Aberdeen. I was like a visiting fellow there, primarily because my wife was doing field work. And so I was just like accompanying her. And so I didn't really know anybody. And it's just a great way of staying on top of stuff. And then that sort of just like grew and grew and grew and then sort of slid into wanting to try and understand why people were doing 
podcast or why scholars were doing podcasts. Because at that time, there weren't many people doing it. The Familiar Strange was there, um, one of the pioneers, especially in anthropology, but there wasn't that much other stuff going on. I was really interested, like, what's this phenomena? What's this growing field? Like, why were things why are things moving? And then I made a few other podcasts since, um, a few now with Allegra Lab, the anthropology publishing platform, more like Europe-based. And um, yeah, and so I'm just interested not only in making podcasts, but trying to understand, yeah, the why, what, and how. So in the writing of your book, I understand you interviewed quite a number of podcasters, um, including some of our colleagues from The Familiar Strange. And it isn't the first time that you've spoken to us in that sense. And I was just wondering if you could maybe talk to us a little bit more about the process of your research as such for, for the book. Yes, it didn't start off as a book. Uh, like many things, it sort of spiraled out of control. So I had very small grants to do a little bit of research about scholarly podcasting, which was like a three-month project just after I'd finished a PhD. This is in 2016. And um, I thought, you know what, I'll just speak to like three or four different podcasters. And because uh, I was a listener to The Familiar Strange, then I got in touch and I spoke with I wrote it down, I'm not going to pretend to remember. Julia Brown, Jodie Lee Trembath, Ian Pollock, and Simon Theobald. And like, uh, we had a nice conversation, and I spoke with a couple of other people as well, and it was going to become a report for the Centre of Media, Data and Society, where I was a postdoc at the time, or where I became a postdoc, but I was just doing like a short thing there. And then it just sort of, then we got more funding for like a two-year thing. And then I wrote a, a small thing for... Uh, Times Higher Education. I wrote just a short thing there about pod a podcast project that we did with students in Olive, which is the Open Learning Initiative, which is a refugee education access program. It was like it was this like wonderful project where we had guest speakers coming in, and the students then would take them to a little studio that we built, and they would interview them, and it was really nice. And then so I wrote about that, and then someone from Rutledge got in touch and said, "Oh, no one's ever done a book on scholarly podcasting or academic podcasting. Do you want to do one?" And like uh, I was like, "Yeah, how, you know, why not?" Like how <laughs> just like I don't know why. And then anyway, and then but this this of course then you have to write you have to write a proposal and like you know gets like what, five peer reviewers or whatever. And then by the time this all happened, and then the lockdown started, like and then I was like, "Okay, I'm during lockdown. I'm going to speak to more people and have it less." You know, because I wasn't really approaching it in the beginning like an anthropologist, but then of course, you know, you can't help what you are. Um, so I sort of, sort of started thinking, true. no, yeah, true. I, like, I can't, I can't just, <laughs> yeah, I can't just like write myself. I need to speak to lots of people first. So I started putting calls out. So after these initial three or four people I spoke with, I thought, okay, let's just like do a snowballing and see who I can speak to. And then, and then I, and then very, very quickly, people started to write and say, yeah, I'll speak to you. I'll speak to you. And the cynical part of you could say, well, you know, academics like to speak about themselves and about their work. But the less cynical side would be, I think there's something about podcasting which makes us a bit reflective or reflexive, right? Because we're doing this thing, we're also thinking about it at the same time in a different way than when we're writing, I think, just, just going through this whole process. And so lots of people got in touch and then I realized the sort of... Um, gaps I was missing because of course we have networks there's loads more people from the social sciences and humanities than what there was from elsewhere so I was like okay I'm going to find a biology podcast I'm going to find a maths podcast you know I'm going to find a virology podcast and I speak to speak to those people as well um and yeah so I listened to at least two podcasts by every single person I spoke with and I spoke to 101 people um or 101 podcasts um sometimes a couple of people at once and then I um yeah, and then and then it was usually like an hour long so interview on Zoom, and then I just started to think of it a bit like you know an ethnographic project in a sense, like trying to explore around them and and then uh, ask them broadly the, the questions that are there in the book, like why, how, and what, but obviously much much more on that as well. And then it became this like weird thing um, where I started to write it up, 
And then as I was writing it up, I realized, you know, like I was doing the usual thing that we would do when we we're writing up uh, some sort of research. I would I I would first like do the analysis of 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 the interviews, and then I would start to you know frame it in a certain you know theoretical friends. And I was a little bit like. Uh, I don't think it was imposter syndrome. It was just definitely being an imposter because I'm not a media anthropologist or a media scholar, which at the first was quite liberating. But then I was like trying to find stuff. And then I started to write it. And then the sort of the, the way I was writing felt really jarring with the the words of the people that I was speaking with. Because as you might imagine, people who are scholars and podcasters can speak in quite an eloquent and, like I mentioned before, reflexive, but also quite deep and also already doing the analysis for you. So then I decided, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm just going to make a book where I don't write anything at all and only have quotes from the beginning to the end. Didn't quite work like that because once it went through peer review, we can talk about peer review if you want. It was I had an interesting peer review uh, process. And then I put it, and then, uh, then I started to add basically a little bit of framing from a more personal point of view. So most of the book is excerpts from interviews arranged in a certain way. So it was more of an act of curation to do the analysis rather than me sort of doing this sort of traditional framing. Right. Thank you. you you've already uh, prefaced my first couple of questions I, I have for you. That's, that's really interesting. Number one, mm -hmm. the 101 interviews or sorry, the 101 podcasts, was that was that planned or was that a happy coincidence? Happy coincidence. Just stopped. I stopped at some point. I just had to keep, eventually I had to say no because people kept writing. So yeah, just a coincidence. So yeah. Perfect. Well, you, you've ended up with the 101, you know, 101 podcasting, right? 101 anthropology, number. 101 anthropology of podcasting. Perfect. Room 101. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess the second question actually has to do with your own training as an anthropologist and looking at research anthropologically. But you say you use your interlocutors voices throughout the text. And that is what the majority um, of this book, scholarly podcasting is, is these really long, in-depth, eloquent quotes from podcasters the world over. And I'm wondering how your own training as an anthropologist and your own way of, of writing and seeing and using more of an inductive and grounded method maybe brought those voices to the front rather than having a one quote by one podcaster and then a chapter which is 20 pages long of you analyzing that one quote. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, but but yeah, because I think it's because obviously we think a lot about voice in anthropology anyway, not only actually being able to hear voice, but about making sure that our interlocutors' voices are represented in a fair way. But we also know to a large degree that we're also in the business of creating... Um, ethnographic authority you know that we also have to be in the business of showing people that you know and the way that often we do this as anthropologists when we write it might be about you know through through the use of anecdotes through the putting ourselves there in the moment and so on and i and i started to and i've done this before in something i wrote just about anthropology podcasting like a journal article and then really had a more sort of in-depth discussion about you know, voice and about authority and about and so on and so forth. But in this case, um, I realized that maybe people who aren't anthropologists should also be interested. And, in, you know, and like I so I, I, I try to keep the anthropology jargon a little bit light or, or not there at all and, 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 and open it up. 
And maybe for people who are from different fields, it might seem like, okay, but where's the analysis? What did he do? He just put everyone's words there. But of course, as we know, like when we're actually dealing with large amounts of data that end up being this very sort of um, synthesized output that we that we that we do when we produce written scholarship, then uh, it's uh, of course a lot of the work actually goes in selecting those particular words to use and arranging it in a certain way and create and trying to create an argument that way. And I did start to think a lot about the medium because as you know because you're you're both podcasters podcasting is a very linear medium right people go from beginning to the end they lean into a certain podcast but they don't jump around it's very you very rarely skip back in a podcast or, or skip forward maybe people listen on double speed or 1.5 speed but that's different from a book because a book you can jump around right and so i was like okay so let's let's see how it is then to make a book which which I think is best read from beginning to end, but doesn't have to be read from beginning to end because it is quotes organized under certain headings um, with short introductions from me by me in each section. You can actually read it in different orders if you want to or skip over certain things or just find your own way of reading it. So I also wanted to think about what the affordances were of a book, which I wouldn't get when producing a podcast. That's amazing. Tim? You call podcasting in your book an insurgent, curious craft. And I just wanted to, to know if you could just tell us a little bit more about what you mean about insurgent and are there any examples that you can provide from your book or from your own practice that come to mind? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's a, I, I guess partly I had in mind the sort of the, sort of the big book on podcasting is called The Audio Media Revolution and it's by Martin Spinelli and Lance Dan and then uh, they make a case that you know podcasting is a is a revolution and I think it's a, it's a cool book and it's and it, and I like it but I I also found it maybe as an anthropologist that the claims were a little bit too strong I don't you know I don't see a revolution but I did see or hear when I was speaking with all of these podcasters that people were trying to change the structures of scholarly knowledge production uh, uh, or of academic life in general or many different things as well and so a lot of people I I spoke to were frustrated about the way their academic life was. They were frustrated about the way that the knowledge that they produce was ranked and codified and given points and like sort of abstracted to the point where it didn't have much meaning. Often a lot of people have lost joy in academia. The, I mean, especially because they got stuck in the sort of the, the treadmill of, you know, PDF production or whatever it is, whatever it is, you know, we do. And so for, for and, and a lot of people also were frustrated about the fact that often the knowledge that they were producing wasn't reaching the communities that they wanted it to reach or even peers in adjacent fields um, because of the way, the language it was used, the places it was published and so on. So for a lot of people, there was this insurgency against these existing structures of, of everything we're doing. And this is what was pushing a lot of people. And, um, and and I think this is actually pretty exciting. And I think it's exciting because, at, at least for the moment, it hasn't been contained or controlled by, I know the academic publishing machine or whatever we want to call it. You know, it's still it's still it still has a has a DIY low tech sort of feel to it. And of course, there are like terrible podcasts made by rectors or VCs of universities that should just promotion pieces or vanity pieces. That's still there. But like with mainstream podcasting, you know, you have you know. Uh, Prince or ex-Prince Harry, whatever he is, or you know Barack Obama, whatever, or celebrity 
talk show hosts making podcasts, getting millions thrown at them by Spotify or venture capitalists, which is collapsing, by the way, because it doesn't really work there either. But most podcasting, most podcasts that are made are made by, you know, a couple of people sitting around in a room or going out with a mic and putting it together. And that's still there. That still ethos is there. So that's the insurgent nature of podcasting. It's still coming from below, pushing things down, and it hasn't yet been turned into something else. Yeah, it's great to, to hear you talk about this, Ian, because of your, your anthropological training, uh, being an anthropologist, so much of that I hear come out in both this book and the way that you talk about the book. It's about taking this format and having it be more public, be more relevant, be more accessible, be more applied, do sort of applied anthropology um, or applied sociology or public or however you want to classify that. Um, in a, in a more accessible way and format, um, which is, I think, yeah, a, a really important conversation that is currently going on in a lot of social sciences and humanities. Um, but particularly within anthropology, how do we make our discipline more relevant? How do we make our discipline more relevant to not only the people that we work with, our interlocutors, but also to business, to government, to the universities themselves? make a case for why anthropology uh, is important more broadly. And I think your book and the insurgent curious craft of podcasting, as you call it, opens up those those possibilities to really make a, a concerted impact um, on our own lives as, as scholars, uh, but also the lives of our interlocutors and the most, uh, in scare quotes, general public. Yeah. I think so. I mean, and here's the quote, and here's what's nice about podcasting is you're not necessarily want, needing needing to reach a massive public. It's a niche, uh, a highly niche thing. And uh, but but still, I mean, I don't know what your download numbers are like at the Familiar Strange, but I'm guessing more people listen to an episode of the Familiar Strange than listen to a keynote at a conference, like in terms of actual numbers, which is pretty amazing to think. Like, uh, and even if the people who are listening to your podcast are just inside the field. Um, you're still actually making an impact there inside the field in a way that a journal article may or may not, right? So it's a different way of impacting your field. At the same time, is you, there are really interesting ways in which people have been reaching outside um, universities to try and put research back in, uh, circulating back amongst the communities they uh, work amongst. And I'm going to probably, I don't speak Portuguese. I don't know whether either of you two do, but there's this nice podcast called Mundario, which is an anthropology podcast. It's by Soraya Fleischer and a Brazilian podcast. And what they were doing was they were taking anthropologists, they were sitting them down in a in a podcast studio together with somebody that they'd researched amongst, and they were having them talk about the research, which was really great because like sometimes people are like, what really? That, that's what you that was your analysis. That's what you got out of it. But that's all there on tape. <laughs> and then after they've made that, then they were circulating that. Like so, she she gave an example in the book. I I think it's in the book about land reform in Brazil. So then they would send it to the mayor of the town or the village or the municipal or whatever the area where they were doing work. And then afterwards, the mayor's like, oh wow, now I get it. That's what you're doing all this time with this anthropologist. Now I understand what you're doing. Because let's be honest, uh, with the greatest world in the world, most people are not going to read the 300, 400 page book which we which we are expected to produce, but they may engage with a podcast in a different way. If you're making it a language people can understand, and if you're producing a f in a form or a mode that people can understand as well, there's like lots of opportunities, like to bring the actual voices of the people we work with 
into a podcast as well and actually make something in a different way. And podcasting isn't like a, a magic bullet. There's, there's, a, there's a wonderful thing about writing, right? It can be very precise. It can be also very long. As I mentioned before, it doesn't necessarily have to be linear. So if you get lost in an argument, you can skip back a few pages. And I think we all like writing and like reading. Podcasting, you can't get as much information in a podcast as what you can in a book. You can't be as precise because you're having a conversation not always, because sometimes you could have these scripted conversa- uh, scripted podcasts, more like audio documentary style. But you've got much more in terms of effective qualities that you can bring in. You've got much more in terms of the sort of the way knowledge is produced during conversation, a sort of dialogical production of ideas and working things through that you don't really get in a text, which is much more, you know, you write something, you need to get it reviewed, you defend it, you put it out there in the world. And by the time it gets out there in the world, you're almost feeling alienated from it because you produced it so long ago. So I think there's different qualities to different mediums. So I'm not going to say podcasting is, you know, solving everything, but I think it's one way of destabilizing and, and opening up, really making a more generous, open form of scholarship. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the most engagement I've ever had from my youth swimming interlocutors, all the teenagers, were listening to the podcast episode I did with the TFS on my PhD project uh, and an episode I did with Transforming Sport uh, on competitive age group swimmers. Did they read any of my articles that I wrote and sent to them? Probably not, but they certainly listened to the podcast, which was uh, really gratifying and, and nice to have that engagement with them, actually. Totally. I mean, you touched on it, I think, earlier on, Ian, but I understand that you opened up your manuscript to public mass peer review. And I'm really interested in that as a, as a kind of process, but can you fill us in a little bit on, on how this actually worked in practice? Yeah, because exactly because I was thinking, and actually I was also interviewing some people who had really interesting peer review pod projects like podcast peer review, which, which is maybe something different um, and led to different areas of research. But what was interesting with the book was I was like, okay, so I've, I've done this book, but I've also interviewed these 101 people who can comment on this as well. So it was sent to everybody. And some people just checked their quotes. Some people just said, yeah, it's fine, whatever. Some people wanted me to reword things they've written. Um, and then we had a bit of a discussion about that and why I preferred it not. like I mean, of course, I, I edited things to make people, to edit out the ums and the ahs and you, you knows. Not all of them, but some of them. Uh, but some people like wanted to change metaphors they used and this and that. So after doing that process and, and go- talking with people and making sure people were happy, then I put it out for mass public peer review, which was basically to put it to put it on a Google Doc, tweet it, send it around a load of email lists, target some people I wanted to um, get feedback from, people outside academia, people who worked here like radio docu- um, documentary uh, radio producers, um, people just writers who I knew from around. Um, I'm also um, editor at Allegra Labs. So we posted something at Allegra so that people could engage with it there. And 40 people did, like, which is pretty great because you know most things we do get peer reviewed by two people uh, or one person. And like to get 40 people, not 40 people who di- didn't read the whole book. Some people read a chapter. Some people read half a chapter. Some people read the whole book. Some people confused me with a different Ian Cook because like my parents didn't name me very interestingly. And there's quite a few Ian Cooks working in academia. So some people thought I was a human geographer uh, based in the UK. And then afterwards, they peer reviewed the book and sent me an email saying, hey, Ian, I hope you're well. I hope the kids are well. Greetings to Marjorie, you know. <laughs> or something like this and I was like all right thanks anyway thanks for, thanks for peer reviewing the book but wrongy and cook anyway and then afterwards yeah. then I then I went through the comments and it made me radically radically change quite a lot of things in the book uh, originally I had no introductions to any of the chapters I just had this two-page introduction to start a book and then just quotes to the end and then after that people said now listen you really need to frame it even if you don't want to do the you know um 
sort of the theoretical framing in each part and keep it lighter, then um, then you should at least do something else. So the idea then was to do it more like a um, almost like how you would introduce a podcast with a little bit of an anecdote and a setup and a talk through, and then hear the and then hear the interview discussion like the different the different interlocutors in conversation with one another and i also did then this sort of extended table of contents at the start of the book which is basically the argument worked through in a more abstract form um so that people can actually read the argument if they want to and want to go back and forth just the thought of having 40 different peer reviewers and that that document i'm sure it was a technicolor of track changes it's enough to give to give me a nightmare anyway <laughs> yeah yeah, I found that extended table of contents at the beginning of the book to be to be incredibly helpful. Not a glossary of terms, but it, it gives you a really good snapshot of the purpose of the book, what the book's about, what you're trying to convey to your reader, and hopefully a little bit of what they should get out of reading these quotes and these books. And again, these these introduction pieces that you you put for each uh, chapter and each subsection, they read like really good ethnography. Uh, a lot of it, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of you in there. Um, there's a little bit of a joking humor. Um, there's a little bit of your own situation about how these podcasts came about, you recording the podcast, you getting the idea to write the book, etc. Um, so it makes it more personable in a way like you would get with a, a good ethnography. Um, so I just really appreciated the craft um, of putting the book together as well. Well, thank you, first of all, but I think that I wouldn't have done that without the peer review and without being pushed to do it by so many people. So, uh, yeah, I think it's also a question of, uh, I think if you approach scholarship in an open and vulnerable way, which is what we do very often with podcasting, because, you know, um, then then people respond in kind. Not always. There were a few nasty people, of course, but like most people responded in kind, and uh, which is super interesting because one of the things I'm, I am arguing in the book is there is a certain vulnerabilizing of the process of knowledge production through podcasting um, because we're opening things up. Like right now in this conversation, we're having a conversation about how uh, the book came about, the methods behind it, the missteps I took, and so on and so forth, which often... Um, isn't the case in academia or in anthropology, right? Often people are like trying to defend their original new idea rather than talking things through, working things out as they go along. And what's nice about podcasts is you can actually hear the, you know, discarded scraps of paper, you know, which you don't get. Even in like disciplines that are very far away from ours, like maths, you know, de deals with the truth. That's what their whole discipline is premised upon, right? But, uh, and then they produce, you know, their their three or four pages that took them like, you know, five years to produce. Uh, but what you miss is is everything that went before. And I was listening to, well, interviewing uh, two podcasters for My Favorite Theorem podcast. And it's great that they're basically talking about, you know, you can hear mathematicians talk through the mistakes they made, but you can actually also hear how excited mathematicians get about maths, which is what we also don't get like in a in a maths paper, we could sometimes get an anthropology, but not really, right? But you can actually, you know, uh, but to hear actually the joy that people have uh, in, in you know, talking through their favorite theorems, which sounds funny to us, but, you know, but also you can get like a, a historian talking about the joy of being in the archive, you know, that's usually missing as mm -hmm. well. And so you get this, you get way more emotion in, in a scholarly podcast than what you would in a book. It puts the human in there. And we do this as, of course, as ethnographers, we put ourselves in there as well. Like you mentioned, we, we write ourselves into our into our work. But um, 
let's also be honest, we do it in a certain contri contrived, maybe it's a bit mean, but we do it in a very deliberate way, right? We show a certain right. a certain uh, side of ourselves to, to create a certain ethnographic authority to produce a certain feeling amongst the author so that we can then make our arguments, whatever it is we're making. Um, but uh, I don't, f I think with podcasting, when we're having this conversation, like, you know, I didn't really know what you're going to ask. You sent me the questions two minutes before we spoke, but like that's, you know, but like, so we have a, a broad idea, but of course the conversation yeah. is also going in different ways, you know, because we're having a conversation, which is also like a vulnerable situation to put yourself in because then we're recording something, you're going to put it out online and you're going to edit it. Uh, and I'm not, I don't have control over that. Right. And so I think there's, um, yeah. there's something quite nice about that as well. And I think we need more of that in academia because often especially i understand it as well like some some of the podcasters were telling me sometimes when they're trying to speak to junior people maybe like advanced phd or or postdoc which by the way also somebody told me we should stop saying junior because in any other field in the world if you've been doing something for five six seven years you wouldn't be considered junior or early career you'd be considered mid-career right so people right. are experts yeah. but they're made to feel like they're not experts so they don't want to talk to someone on a podcast about a subject they've been researching for five years i mean uh, <laughs> you know because they're junior because they're yeah. junior meanwhile you know you know professor emeritus of whatever can can come on and talk about anything <laughs> you know i'll talk about anything yeah like whatever yeah i've got thoughts and everything sure. you know sure whatever yeah. and because because it's <laughs> low it's low stakes for them they sometimes can make worse podcasts because the people didn't really prepare like the you know the more senior people because you know eh, whatever you know they reach a certain stage where arrogance becomes them apologies for sending you the questions only uh only two minutes uh, in advance but i figured you'd be well versed to be able to speak to your own uh, uh scholar produced podcast as well as I I thought it was deliberate. I thought it was deliberate. I thought it was deliberate. I thought you wanted no, because like this is also a question that some I mean, I spoke to people about this. This talks about the method of producing a podcast, right? So I've done it before where I've sent people questions too far in advance and they've overprepared and it and it's almost sounded right. like they were reading out their answers. It's like, nah, that's not the form, you know. And then sometimes some people ask for the questions and then then i would depending on the topic i would maybe send them a day in advance and i was thinking maybe you wanted to sort of like you know surprise me with them give me a bit of a structure but then but then uh but then not have me overthink my you know what what anecdote i was going to tell what joke i was going to tell and keep it more fresh because that's also like a i thought it was a methodology methodological choice but i was wrong <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Per perhaps it's a subconscious methodological choice. I think it's it's the style that I do prefer, uh, and uh -huh. it's what I've done in the past. Um, so yeah, I'll, from this this moment forward, we'll we'll call it methodological choice. <laughs> Thank you, Ian. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is. I mean, uh, then now now we're lifting the hood uh, for the uh, for the audience. They're like going under the. We're getting very meta, right? Where we're discussing the putting together of a scholarly podcast about scholarly podcasting. Scholarly podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if I mean, as 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 uh, as you know, I sent you like recordings. Do you want to listen to one of them? And I'd, and we can listen to what you. We can hear what you guys think. Like uh, this is like some of the voices of the interlocutors. My what interest in podcasting was also kind of this free flow style of of sense making together as the conversation moves. So I didn't know that to be honest up front. So I really prepared and sent them a list of questions that were nah. But I very uh, uh, quickly observed my own um, interview style being more mm -hmm. this kind of free flowing sense making way. Uh, also, it's very confronting listening back to yourself uh, in editing, yeah, yeah. and now that that is very difficult. But so I, I started I also discovering with some of our speakers that that made them uncomfortable. 
this is true. Mathematicians love a blackboard. You know, we will you know, we'll start writing on a blackboard and drawing and all this. Uh, but if you, if you don't have that, you have to really begin to think about you know what it is you're trying to explain and how you can say the words to convey that that sentiment to someone. So uh, it, I think it's an interesting exercise for for mathematicians to to actually perceive this way. So I work on a few viruses. I mean, I'm, I spent most of my career working on polio virus, one one virus. And then we, we diversified a few years ago. And I mainly just read about poliovirus, very few other viruses, because it was my field. I didn't understand it. I didn't know enough. But in, on the podcast, on TWIV, we cover all viruses, not just mine or the, the other hosts. And so I have been reading now for 12 years papers on basically every virus out there. When I go to a meeting to do a podcast, I have to read all about the four or five guests, what they've been doing on. And if I go to a university, I do the same thing. So I've enormously broadened my knowledge of virology to the point where when we write new editions of our textbook, it's always me that say, hey, do you know about this? We should write about this and that. And I often take my blog posts and repurpose them for the book because I've already written about all these things. And when I want to see what's new in the field for the next version of the textbook, I look at my podcast episodes because there I'm covering what I think is really interesting and broadly applicable. But that's just virology. So it makes me think broadly about my own viruses uh, when, I'm, when I'm trying to solve problems. It gives me experimental breath because I see techniques that I wouldn't have encountered probably. But then I do podcasts in microbiology, uh, ev evolution, parasitism, neuroscience, immunology. So I'm reading in those fields, which I would never probably, certainly not parasitism, right? And you get to learn other approaches. And you find that many of these fields actually have a lot of in common, uh, but you can also see the unique aspects and you can apply that to your work. You can apply experimental techniques and approaches. And a, and a podcast we have This Week in Evolution covers really all organisms, not just viruses and bacteria, but, you know, m mammals and birds and reptiles, insects, everything, plants. And boy, does that give you breath uh, to really think about how things evolved and how they relate to each other. Um, so, and now um, an, an example is um, I've been going to these giant virus meetings for past few years in Germany. These these are spurred by the finding that you can get these really big, big, big viruses that we've never seen before, and they have a unique biology. And the people who study them are really interested in ecology. I never thought about ecology, right? Never. But I, now I, I thought about it enough so that this year I introduced a new ecology lecture into my course, and the next textbook edition is going to have an ecology chapter because it's all about how viruses interact, not just with their hosts, but with everything else in the environment. This is so important, and it was it was not something I ever appreciated. And I ascribe it to the podcast because I got invited to these meetings uh, to do podcasts, and it really that's what turned me on to it. I think one of the most interesting things, Ian, is, is listening for this tool to thinking with is I hear and and can see the quotes that are pulled out of the book themselves. You know, I, I the, the the quotes that are that are in that in that small clip. Um, Many of them, if not all of them, are are in 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 the book, and to be able to hear, uh, like you say, these these academics, these scholars, these podcasters actually talk about and and open up their vulnerability, um, is 
it's fascinating. It, it pulls, yeah, it pulls the hood off of the, the front of the car and see it says that, well, this, you know, it's science, but we're all human when we're producing this science. You know, there, there is a vulnerable aspect to it. There is excitement. There is joy. Um, and it isn't just a, a, to use the analogy of a mathematician, a mathematician sitting alone in a room at a chalkboard, scribbling on paper over and over again until they have the equation and, and, and put that out into the world. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's also interesting. So um, you can hear that for some people, podcasting was a sense-making process. This is what Karina and Anch said is just the human show. I think she's trained in anthropology, but she works now in in in, uh, in business. And like she's just like, yeah, you you work things out as you go along. And for her, that was super interesting. And then you heard when you had you also heard from Kevin Knudsen. He was talking about you know oh, mathematicians. You know they love a blackboard. You know, but of course, like when mm -hmm. you but when you force people to speak without a blackboard, or when you force mathematicians to speak without a black, blackboard, they're forced to explain things in different ways, which is super interesting. Like switching the medium, switching the format pushes us to pushes us to do things in different ways, sometimes more or less successfully, right? There's great, for example, now more and more ethnographic uh, graphic novels or comics coming out, you know, and that pushes again people to think about things in different ways. Again, this is not saying, this is not creating a hierarchy. Some, they're saying some things are better than others. It's rather saying different things do, do things to different people. But also, and maybe you found this, uh, yeah, you tell me, like doing something like The Familiar Strange over the years um, is makes you engage with scholarship that you wouldn't otherwise engage with. So you also heard from a virologist who does This Week in Virology, Vincent uh, Razziniello. I hope I'm not m mispronouncing his name. Uh, but he uh, he makes a super successful podcast because apparently if you make a virology podcast during a pandemic, people want to listen to it. But exactly, he was also talking about how, you know, he was like learning stuff. And he's like, you know, um, full professor in some fancy American university, which I've forgotten right now. And like, but he was learning stuff all the time that he wouldn't otherwise learn about that informed the research they were doing in their lab that informed the textbooks he was producing for undergraduates because you know it pushed him wider because we all know you become hyper specialized right um the further you stay the longer you stay in academia and this level of engagement with people's work which is like you know what i'm going to read something enough to be able to have an intelligent conversation with somebody but this isn't something i'm going to cite i'm not going to contribute to their whatever and so on i think it's wonderful because it, it bleeds into your work in different ways that you might otherwise not be exposed to if you weren't making a podcast i think that's something really fascinating to come out of uh his talk about the virology podcast and maybe it's something we take in anthropology. Um, uh, we take it for granted in anthropology that we have a, again, in scare quotes, holistic <laughs> look at the world and, and humanity. And for me, at least, that's always meant, okay, listen widely to different podcasts about natural sciences, about archaeology, um, about sport and recreation, and to read widely within those fields. Um, but I guess after listening to this, this quote and reading it, I realized we do take that for granted. If you're reading and engaging in areas outside of your very specialized field after you've done or while you've done a PhD, while you're doing your PhD after it, um, it's not it's almost the exception to the rule in a, in a way. Um, and podcasting really allows, maybe not allows, but opens up the possibility for you to want to go and explore different avenues and different different fields in a way that you don't have to sit down and try and slog through a a, a journal article right yep, yep. 
you can you can get that um i guess uh i'll find the word you're looking for the word you're looking for is curiosity because that's the that's the second thing i'm claiming in the book you know what is what is what is scholarly podcasting it's a driver of and a feeder of curiosity and uh isn't that an amazing thing and not unlike um and i don't mean in this like sort of naive curiosity that somehow you get in certain forms of popular podcast today where it's like you know sit down with some so-called expert who has some like you know wacky theory and just like you know ask them questions and you know work it out as you go along because it's it's a more engaged uh healthily skeptical and critical appreciation of someone's work but nevertheless it is about driven by curiosity like you know what that person looks that's that that work sounds interesting let's get them on the podcast you know uh and then you speak to that person you're like oh wow that's really interesting i've never thought about that before and then you see something like you know even if it's like scrolling through twitter or listening to another podcast you're like you know what that's interesting i'm gonna follow that and that's wonderful and i think that's like liberating it's like going back to being uh an undergraduate or something where like you, you didn't have you weren't made to make choices yet about what you you were you know like uh or what your specialization was because you can just keep going and uh so i think yeah it's a curiosity driver and feeder is podcasting that's brilliant i couldn't have put it any better <laughs> so uh thank you ian <laughs> uh, yeah. ian i'm curious to have your take on how podcasting might not only change our scholarly practices we've kind of touched a little bit on podcasting as a mode for teaching and, and learning not just within the confines of an academic setting, but more broadly, you know, um, outside of it. I was just wondering if you could maybe touch on a little bit about not only how podcasting may change our scholarly practices, but also in terms of opening up greater possibilities for non-traditional forms of publishing um, to be recognized as meaningful, quote unquote, outputs. Yeah. So it's a, it's a difficult one, I think, about, it's a question of, Recognition is very important. That we need to recognize what you call in the Australian context, right? Non-traditional research outputs. In the UK, where I'm from, but not where I'm based, people talk a lot there about impact and because of the research excellence framework and impact and they count impact in certain ways as well. And they start to try and measure these things. And I wouldn't want things to be measured. Um, I would like things to be counted um, because I think it's important that people recognize the labor that goes into things, recognized or counted. I don't know. Maybe maybe we can say recognized, uh, but we certainly want it to be ranked and, and systematized and so on. It also, what it does though, I think, um, is it also reconfigures notions of who our peers are and who is then doing our, who's reviewing us in either formal or less formal ways. So there's a, um, there's an oral historian in Australia, originally from Ireland, Siobhan McHugh, and she does really interesting, um, basically, audio documentaries. And she says, listen, if I if I made an audio documentary about Aboriginal art, for example, right, because uh, she has, <laughs> and uh, that gets recognized uh, within the community I made it, that gets recognized by, you know, um, documentary makers and can win an award or you know be featured in certain places um why do i need a, a layer of um formal acceptance from you know another historian or, or, or what does that even mean right so there's the question who's the peer who's the peer in that who's the person to to say to, that's legitimate scholarship or that's well crafted and so on because it's a difficult question isn't it like if someone is going to also then evaluate our work often to some degree, if we're producing written scholarship, they're evaluating our ability to write well. 
Um, so if someone was asked, let's say you produced a, a podcast and you wanted it to be reviewed and you said, okay, this is scholarship, um, does the person who review that need necessarily to understand the audio medium or not? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a question, I think, because we don't necessarily have lots of expertise within the sub areas of expertise as well. You might want to combine them in different ways. So I think it's something that's going to be worked out as we move forward. These non, I think, to sort of to say always the non-traditional research output, yeah, with square quotes <laughs> that you're doing, is to somehow create a hierarchy somehow. There's the original proper form of scholarship, which is one thing, and then there's all the, you know, experimental, fluffy, fuzzy things on the side. But we also have to look back at, you know, when writing became the standard way of producing knowledge, when um, double blind, which is a sort of an ableist term, but it's used all the time, uh, you know, peer review journal articles became became the gold standard. It's pretty recently, like 1960s, mm -hmm. something like this. You know, this was before that knowledge was produced in different ways, you know, uh, but we've just, we've got sucked into this system. So I think anything can be knowledge. And, and I think podcasting is part of a wider move towards multimodality, which we should embrace. Well, well said, well said. <laughs> the last question, I think. Um, the last couple of questions. What's next, Ian? You've you've published this this book, uh, scholarly podcasting. Uh, you've you've gone and interviewed over 101 uh, podcasters or, or podcast projects. Um, what's what's next in the uh, what's next in the pipeline for you? Well, as I mentioned, this book was sort of an accident, right? Like uh, I just did it mm -hmm. because of whatever, and then. A couple of people I spoke with, Laurie Beckstead and Hannah McGregor, who are both podcasters, and um, well, one's a media scholar, Laurie, and Hannah's a professor of publishing. They were really invested in this idea of peer review and how to peer review audio. And then so we wrote a book together, which we just submitted last week, which is called Podcast or Perish, um, Peer Review and Scholarly Knowledge Production and Something, 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 um, which comes out in Bloomsbury uh, next year. And that was a fun process because it was a very different way of writing. Some of the data I collected goes into that book, but really we actually produce knowledge, mostly through having conversations with ourselves through really amazing collective writing sessions where we'd write together, like, like as if we'd come together in a Google Doc, we'd start to write things, but we wouldn't treat them as our own words, but as our as, as, as the other person's words. So we just like write over each other and this and that and produce this stuff and then yeah, that's that's that. But really, I felt I feel like uh, like uh, someone playing a, a video game who um, got has got distracted by side quests. Because <laughs> like, as I mentioned, really, I'm a I'm an urban anthropologist, and I hardly published anything from my PhD because I just got doing all this podcasting stuff. And I, and I was the director of Olive, the Open Learning Initiative, the Refugee Education Access Program. But our university has went a bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know, terrible, and uh, shut it down. So uh, I, I, recent, right. I recently lost my job <laughs> in February. I got made redundant. Ooh. And uh, so the, what we want to do is, but as, as you, I don't know how much everyone knows about Hungary, um, pretty uh, actively hostile place for migrants in general and refugees in particular, especially from certain parts right. of the world. I mean, um, yeah. As, as are many countries, but I think Hungary is trying its best to be the worst. Uh, and so there's very little provision. Uh, so we want to set up something independent, like an independent education initiative. 
Um, so this is going to be, I would say, it's an anthropological praxis, uh, a re responsive anthropology, responding to the needs of the communities we work amongst. I think this is especially important considering, you know, many of the people who end up as refugees or asylum seekers in Hungary come from countries that, you know, my country used to colonize and like, and left in a very bad way and so there's yes. sort of something there like i think we can use the sort of the the practices and the political positions and the i don't know um the disposition we developed for anthropology to actually do something in the world i wouldn't necessarily call it applied anthropology because that sounds a bit too developmentalist but it's it's certainly anthropological in some ways so that's sort of going to be the the thing to work on whilst then also going to go back to india and do like follow-up research because i was really like looking at urban change but you know it's like you do something for like 18 months and you get like a good mm -hmm. sort of micro everyday notion of change but now i started doing that research in 2011 so now when i go back i'm really going to get this long sweep as well so that's going to be the sort of next big sort of uh research project yeah uh, that sounds wonderful uh, I really hope you bring this anthropological praxis and podcasting um, in to the fore uh, with this educational project that you're hoping to set up in in Hungary. Um, yep, it's just early days, but let's see. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much again for Ian. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, really enjoyed the the podcasting book. Looking forward to the next one on podcasting or parish coming up in Bloomsbury, and we'll have a link to that in the uh, in the show notes and the like. Brilliant. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. I have to say, I used to listen to The Familiar Strange. Then once I started doing this project, I listened to like academic podcasts every day for like a year and a half. And now I don't listen to any academic podcasts at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I stopped listening, but he's always, he's still on my, he's still, I'm still subscribed, but I just like, uh, but yeah, so I'm going to go back and start listening again. Cause I used to really enjoy it. Like, uh, yeah, I, and it sounds really bad. I don't know if you're still doing it, but I remember you used to have like these, these ones where it's like conversation, like amongst the group of the familiar strangers and then also the interviews. And it was a really, I think that conversation amongst anthropologists was also a super nice way of doing, of opening up anthropology and everyone being honest and having these discussions as well. I think it's a nice mix of these two formats as well. That was it. Me, Tim, and our guest Ian. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange, with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. We are excited to announce our very first editor's forum. As part of this initiative, we are calling for blog submissions on the fascinating topic of popular cultural representations of anthropologists. Check it out in the show notes or at our website. If you want to contribute to this editor's forum, the blog, or have anything else to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Ferrelli, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. 
Our podcast executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep talking strange. Strange.